Good to see you this morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Matt Baker. I am not uh, Ken Rucker. Uh, I don't want you to hold what's about to be inflicted upon you against him. Uh, but uh, he is, Pastor Ken, his wife Susan are in the UK. And so they'll be there through uh, next Monday, be praying for them, be worshiping somewhere in London today, and then he'll be preaching in Scotland next Sunday. And so be in prayer for him uh, in their travels, they enjoy their time together, that it's fruitful, they attend a conference there as well, and uh, that everything goes, goes well for them. So in the meantime, for us here today, we are starting a series of sermons uh, in the book of Psalms, in the book of Psalms, so you can turn there, you can just turn to the first Psalm. Right now, let me just kind of set the stage. I'm not preaching from the first psalm. We'll get there in just a moment. Uh, but if you'll turn to that first psalm for just a moment, we'll set the stage this morning, and I'll let others build out that stage, if you will, as they uh, preach uh, the very sermons that they'll be preaching over the next few weeks. And so we'll be going through the psalms and just some selections. You can go on our webpage, and you can click sermons, and if you'll scroll down, there are some series there, and you can click the banner that says psalms, and you can see Previous sermons preached uh, here at New Branch on uh, through the book of Psalms and in the book of Psalms. And so we've already had two sermons. Pastor Ken's preached uh, several years back, uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, but they, they are the doorway to the Psalms. And so I, I think it helps us set the stage as we approach uh, a new sermon series in general over the next few weeks. And so let's go there uh, real quick, because I don't have a whole lot of time. Let's go there real quick, and uh, let me show you something that I think sets us up well, uh, and then we'll dive into Psalm 8, which is where we'll spend our time uh, this morning, okay? But if you'll look at the book of Psalms, scholars call this a doorway to the Psalms, the two entry columns, if you will, in the house of the Psalms is how uh, these two have been referred to. Uh, if you'll notice something just really quick, uh, it begins Psalm 1, blessed is the man, right? And then go to the Psalm 2, the very last of uh, verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge. It, it forms bookends, if you will, in uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And it kind of tells us these two Psalms fit together. And we can think about that term blessed, happy, it's been translated that way. If you look uh, in uh, the term being used in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, blessed, flourishing is how we could say that. Uh, and so that term flourishing uh, fits well to Psalm 1, right? Flourishing is what? Who? Who? The man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but what? He uh, or or. or Walks in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the, um, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's a progression there, by the way. Walk, stand in it. Uh, let me just sit down in it. And so, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That is one of the mega themes of the Psalms, the law of the Lord, right? So as you think about the Psalms, you think about the longest Psalm, Psalm 119, which I think uh, Jonathan Mitchell will preach that whole psalm in a few weeks. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. He's not going to do that. Uh, um, but no, actually, if you go on those, uh, to those sermons, you'll see uh, Jonathan has preached some psalms out of Psalm 119, uh, and they are excellent. And that, that whole psalm is on what? On God's Word. Psalm 19 is about God's Word. And so the, it's a mega theme of the psalms. And so flourishing are those who, and then you get the metaphor, in verse 3, their life is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit, right? Now, the next mega theme of the Psalms is chapter 2, and it's the Lord's anointed. It's the Lord's anointed. And I'll be brief here, but you can see that there is no neutrality in this world. 
There is no neutrality in this world. It says that the nations rage and the people's plot. The key word is in vain against the Lord's anointed. They will not be successful. Although it will seem like it at times, right? It will seem like it at times. It seemed like it yesterday when we see death and destruction in our own nation again. That, that there's just hate and satanic uh, revolt of destruction against human life, uh, against the way God intended for the world to be. And it seems like evil is winning, but it will not win. It's all in vain. And I want you to notice something, because uh, the way it puts forth the Lord's anointing, which is fulfilled ultimately in Christ that we'll see in Psalm 8 this morning, uh, is that he is a mighty king. Now look at verse 10. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. Rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. And rejoicing and trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry. You perish in the way, which goes back to Psalm 1. You perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, blessed, how are you blessed? Trust the Lord's word. Trust the Lord's anointed. The Lord's word points to the Lord's anointed. And, and so the flourishing life are those who trust his word and those who trust his anointed. Now, look at that. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Derek Kidner, the late Derek Kidner, has a great line on that, that end of that psalm too. And he says, there is no refuge from him, only refuge in him. There is no refuge from him, but only refuge in him. Now thus sets the stage as we enter into the house of the psalms. That we're ready to go in and we're ready to, to feast on God's word. And we're ready to hear, as Bob prayed just a moment ago, and be nourished by it and take it to heart. And so as we go over the next few weeks and look at various psalms, you'll see psalms of thanksgiving. You'll see psalms of praise. You'll see psalms of lament even next week as Tyler comes and shares with us uh, from the psalms. You'll see those lament and you'll also see royal psalms, messianic psalms, which is what we'll look at this morning. So you can flip over to Psalm 8 and that's where we'll spend our time. So in an effort to set the stage for this psalm particularly, let me contrast it to what we experience day in and day out in our current culture. In his book, The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self, in his recent abbreviated work of that book, A Strange New World, Carl Truman has done some very helpful cultural analysis. And so I think if you just put the the two titles together of both those works and projects, you can, understand, you can understand the scope of his work and what he's trying to do. So let me say it this way. It's the rise, and that next word is key. It's the rise and triumph of the modern self that has led to the strange new world we find ourselves living in currently. It's the rise and the triumph of the modern self that has led to the strange new world that we find ourselves living in currently. He uh, works on for, or he works on modern thinkers such as Robert Bella and Charles Taylor, and what they've deemed expressive individualism and in the age of authenticity. He's tracking it all the way back to thinkers such as Descartes and Rousseau. Now, hold on one second, because I know you may think, "Well, that all sounds a little bit complicated," but just bear with me for a moment. Truman writes this. In short, I like in short. Anybody else? In short, that's why you should read his second book, Strange New World, because the first one's really big. But uh, in short, he says, I just lost my place in my notes. Uh, In short, the modern self is one where authenticity, 
That's a very um, word that has a lot of capital in our culture, right? The authentic. In short, the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings, right? Be true to yourself. You decide what to be and go be it. You look deep within and you decide who you are, your core identity, who you are, and you express that outwardly. And culture now better celebrate that, right? Not just affirm it, but celebrate it. And that now even your own body has no authority over you. Friends, this is the root of everything that we're seeing today from, from the sexual revolution to, to choosing our own gender to even saying our body has no authority on us. I'll determine when I die, not my body. And euthanasia and on and on, all the ethical things that we see in our culture today, the, these are the roots of those things. And then he says this, today, modern, the view of the world is where each person is free to perform life in whatever way they choose. Now, that term perform is very important. That they're free to perform life in whatever way they choose. Calvin talked about the world as a theater of God's glory. Yet today, the world is becoming more and more a platform for our performance. Public intellectual Yuval Levine, not a Christian, has written about this in politics, where he says that the institutions in American culture used to be places that formed the individual. Now they're places of preforming for the individual. We see our politicians performing for sound bites and votes and tweets and likes and favorites instead of serving in the ways that they should serve and on and on and on. We see it in the, in the church with celebrity pastor cultures and on and on and on we can go where uh, institutions are no longer forming people. They're, they're places for performance. Yet we see it even in something like the selfie phenomenon, Right? Now, I'm not saying all selfies are wrong. I took a selfie with friends from this place uh, yesterday at the Braves game, right? So I'm not saying they're wrong. My conscience was not bound in doing that. I didn't go and pray in private afterwards or anything like that. But, but more and more, to, to we're, we're seeing, right, we go to the Grand Canyon, and instead of just a place to take in the beauty of it, it's, it's the backdrop now for my story. Click and let me post it on the ground. And on and on and on, we can see how this is playing out in our culture. But the passage before us today offers an important, I'll call it recalibration, in our view of the world and our place in it. It offers for us an important recalibration in our view of the world and our place in it. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Psalm chapter 8 and let's read God's word together. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, and a son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name 
in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word now, captivate our hearts and our minds to the king in all of his beauty. Oh Lord, let us find our refuge in your anointed. Let us trust your word. Well, Father, we pray that the Spirit has gone before and done the work in the soil of our hearts so that as the seeds fall, our response is belief and that it takes root and that it bears fruit in our life and that our lives are flourishing not according to the world's standards but according to your standards, according to your calling in our lives. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, friends, there is some PowerPoint, about two slides. Uh, so you can roll to that next slide and you can see my outline. If you, if you have heard me preach before, you know I hardly ever have PowerPoint. But, but Ken sent me this template and I'm assuming that he, he had intentions for doing so. So, uh, so, uh, so here we go. Here's my outline. If you want to take notes, it's not going to get much better than this. Okay. There's no, there's no bullets rolling in or anything like that. This is just it. And so in a moment, we'll go uh, in about an hour when we get to the end of the sermon and the application. Uh, yeah, I'm not joking. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll turn over to one more slide that will have some application for you. But here's the outline of what we're looking at. Uh, verses 1 and 2 first. Notice how, how David begins in the psalm. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, O Lord, our Lord. He begins with, O Yahweh, the covenant name for God. This is the I am that I am that that the Lord said to Moses when he said, Who shall say that sent me, uh, has sent me? And he says, You tell him that I am. I am that I am sent you. So this is God's covenantal name. And so the way David begins is, O Yahweh, our Adonai, right? He's our Lord. And so if you look, if you have the ESV, a lot of your translations will help you with this. And that when they put LORD in all caps, is showing you that it's using the covenantal name for God. It's using that name Yahweh. Then it has LORD capitalized with the rest of it lowercase. It's saying Adonai, he is our LORD. And so David's making a confession here that it is the covenantal God who is our LORD. And then he goes from there and he says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. And he's saying, your name is mighty. Your name is glorious. How weighty, right? That's what that word glory means. Is your name in all the earth. Now, now notice this. What we understand, we could go to Psalm 19 and see this. The Lord's creation of this, if he's creator, is testifying to him, right? This is his handiwork. And so the beauty of creation testifies to the creator. And, but notice what David says next. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. And so in a moment, he's going to expound on that, on the heavens and the beauty and the glories of it. But what he's saying at the outset very clearly is that, that your glory transcends that. Your glory is over that. It's above that. It's not pantheism. It's not God in creation. It's God over creation because he's created it all. And your glory transcends it all. Now, notice something else. If we read through it, you might have thought, this is a little strange, right? Verse 2 strikes us a little awkward. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. This is not the way we would do things as human beings. My niece is right up here 
she's a couple months old. I should know exactly how, my, how, how old she is. But don't, don't tell my sister that I don't know that. She's holding her. Let's pretend like she doesn't hear me. Um, but, but she's right up here, and if I need somebody to fight a battle for me, I'm not going to grab her and put her up out front. That's just not how I'm going to think. It's not my thought, right? It's not my thought pattern. But, but notice what the psalm says. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength. She can't even do a push-up yet, right? You've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Now, there's three primary places this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. And one of those places is in Matthew chapter 21. And so in Matthew 21, Jesus quotes this, out of the mouth of babies, the Lord delights. That's what you need to know. Out of the mouth of babies, the Lord delights in the testimony of his glory. Get this, through weakness. He loves and he delights out of the testimony of his glory through weakness. In Matthew 21, when Jesus quotes this, What's going on is that he's done the triumphal entry in, into Jerusalem. He's there in the temple, and he heals a blind and a, the blind and the lame in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes, you read that power and authority, right? The chief uh, priests and the scribes are there, and they saw the wonderful things he did. But it was the children, read that weakness, it was the children who cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. That's who cried out. Right? And then what it tells us in verse 15 is the religious leaders were indignant. That means mad, angry. Right? They, saw, they all saw the glory of what he did. The children cried out in praise, and they were indignant. And Jesus then quotes in verse 16, Have you ever read, or, or, or first they say to Jesus, Did you hear what they're saying? Talking about the children. Did you hear what they're saying about you? And then in verse 16, Jesus says, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And those leaders will go on to plot and scheme the death of Jesus and plan out his death. It appears that in weakness, right, that through their power and influence, it appears that they've won. It appears that in weakness, Christ has lost. And the mouth of the children will be mocked. Yet here's what we know. That Jesus was reigning from that cross. And the cry of those children will be vindicated. Through his reign. Now we'll fill that in more as we move forward in the text. But what I want you to see is that the Lord delights to receive praise through what the world sees as weakness. Friends, who, who plans and plots the takeover of Jericho, the way that Joshua did it. Only the Lord. Who plans to pare down an army for Gideon to have victory? Only the Lord. Who chooses David? Who chooses Joseph? And on and on we can go. Who chooses Abraham? Only the Lord. That he loves to show his power through weakness. This is what Paul says. Right, that, that his wisdom is, is, is greater, is foolishness to the world, but it's greater than the greatest wisdom uh, in the world, that, that his weakness is stronger than the greatest strength in all the world that is shown first and foremost in the cross. Just by way of quick application, Christian, do you know when you're weak and you're distraught? 
and you can barely raise your voice, but in faith you cry out and praise the name of the Lord. To the world, that looks like weakness and it's laughable, but to God, he delights in that praise and he will vindicate your cry one day. That's good news. It's good news that that we don't need a strong man for us. We need the one true man, Christ Jesus, for us. The one who came and reigned from the cross on our behalf. Now, look at where David goes next, verse 3. Now, he returns back to this creation. He says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Think about that for a moment. What we would know if David would walk out on a clear night and were to look up into the sky, right, with an unaided eye, he would see somewhere between five to 10,000 stars. Now think about the glories and the beauties of, of, of the skies, of the heavens. Think about the technology that we have today and that they still cease to amaze us. That what we're told is that within our own galaxy, there's estimations of 100 billion to 400 billion on the high end stars in our galaxy alone. That if you could drive from the earth to the sun, driving at 60 miles an hour, it would take you 177 years. That the next nearest star is 4.2 light years away. That's four years traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,282 miles per second. This is the expanse of the cosmos and of, of, of all the galaxy and of the sky and the stars that are there. And, and, and David is saying, when I look up, at the work, at the heavens. I'm amazed by it. I'm amazed by the work of your heavens. I mean, do you ever just walk up and look at the night sky and feel small to a great mountain landscape and feel small? Do you, do you walk to the shore of the ocean and look out to the ocean and, and feel small in the, in the beauty and the glory of creation? And so what's amazing is that, that even as our technologies have gotten greater and greater, We continue to be amazed at the expanse of all the cosmos. And then notice what David says next. Notice notice the the picture, the word picture that's here. When I look at the heavens, it's finger work for you, God. That's the picture. It's not a big deal for you, right? Because your glory is over that. You're so much greater than the greatness of the creation that we see. And as he talks about that, we can think about Genesis 1.16 where it says that, that God created them all. Or Psalm 147.4 that he t- determines the number of the stars and he gives them their names. And all this expanse and all this greatness, maybe is saying this is nothing but finger work to you, God, and your glory is greater than that and it's over that. And then he pulls us down, right? Down to, to focus on us. And he says, I, I look at that. I think about the greatness of it, that his finger worked for you, that you've set it in place. And then look at verse 4. What is man that you're mindful of him? Isn't that amazing? Several years ago, I had a friend that had posted something on social media and they talked a little bit about what we, what we just mentioned, Right? The expanse and the greatness of the cosmos and how, how huge it is. And then there was 
some picture of, of the galaxy, and, and then there was this statement of, yeah, your problems don't seem that big now, do they? And there's something that just didn't sit right. This person's not a believer, very spiritual, and only after a couple of seconds of processing it, this is where my mind went. Because David's doing that and saying, look at how big and glorious it is. But yeah, you're mindful of us. You're mindful of us. That, that that's great, but humanity's the crowning jewel of your creation. Let that sink in for a moment. And he says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the, the son of man that you care for him? I heard St. Clair Ferguson years ago say that Psalm 8 is an exposition of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the creation mandate. It's a psalm that expands on it for us about who we are. In the midst of such vast, overwhelming greatness, then we get man. David says, what is man? And Genesis 1.27 answers it, and he knows that he's meditating on that. That in Genesis 1.27, God made them what? Male and female. In his image and in his likeness. That they are the, the crowning jewel of his vast creation. That's what verse 5 is spelling out for us. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That you creating us in your image, that you have crowned mankind with glory and honor, that we have dignity and worth and value, not because of what we produce, not because of our accomplishments, not because of our abilities, not because of our usefulness to society, but by the mere fact that we are human beings created in the image and the glory of God. That's good news. Friends, we, we don't view humanity according to the world's standards, according to being producers and, 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 and celebrity or whatever else that we see. Paul talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians. In, in chapter 5, he says, No longer do I, do I view people the way that I used to. According to the world's standards, what he's saying, he, he said, I don't even see Christ the way that I used to anymore. And that's the whole hinge point. That in meeting Christ and understanding him, then he understands humanity. Rightfully. And so he goes out from there and he, and he talks about the outcome of this. That you've crowned him with glory and honor because we've been made and created in the image of God. And he says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Brothers and sisters, we uh, are created in God's image to be animate flesh and blood representations of God on this earth. We see these patterns all throughout creation. We recognize icons, right? We see those, we recognize them. See the apple with the bite taken out of it, you know it represents the tech giant apple, right? You, you, you see, we recognize these things everywhere, and it's saying, this is our domain. This is our territory, right? This is our domain. This is our territory. And so we think about that. We can see how kings have done it throughout all of human history, where they place statues of themselves in their territory. So then you walk into that territory, you know, I'm now under 
the rule and reign and under the territory of whoever the statue is. But the Lord is not man. He didn't make stone images of himself, but he made flesh and blood human beings who are in his image and who are to be his representation throughout all the world. This is the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with my glory. Fill the earth with my image bearers. And so we know with that, if we look at Genesis 2, that 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 creation mandate, that dominion and authority, is that these images of God are to exercise his dominion, exercise his authority throughout all creation, and it can be summed up in Genesis 2 to work and to keep. You can go back there and look at Genesis 2.15 and you'll see that that was the charge that God gave Adam. He put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And we could understand that word work synonymously with cultivate, to cultivate that garden, right? It was a garden. The idea is he would cultivate it and expand it. He would keep it, protect it. This is the exact same language G.K. Bill notes that's used throughout the rest of Scripture to speak of the priest and their work in the temple. Right? That they would work, cultivate, they would keep, they would protect. Right? This was their job, to name. Think about Adam, he named animals. They would name, clean, unclean. They would name things. And so they were exercising this authority. And so, so we see this. So this is, this is our call, and notice what God calls his people. There when he makes covenant with them, with Moses in Exodus, that they are to be a kingdom of priests. Right? Kingdom, dominion, priest. Think about this, this language of work and keep. And the same language applies in the New Testament when Peter picks it up in his epistle and he says that we are a kingdom of priests to our God. And so so this theme runs all the way through Scripture. And this is the call. Yet what we know is that things aren't right, are they? So we can't just stop at Genesis 2 and ignore Genesis 3. The things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You see, almost immediately in the garden, that Adam and Eve rebel against God, and they face death. Why death? Well, they tried to usurp God and take his place. They decided they didn't want to be an image of God. They want to be God. You go back and read that passage, you can see this language is there. And death most certainly shows them that they are not God. See, it's the very thing that they were intended to have dominion over will have dominion over them. The dust they came to, the dust they will return. The very thing that will be under their feet, they will be under it in death, back into the ground. And friends, we see this over and over throughout Scripture. We we recognize that, that things aren't right, that things aren't the way that they were meant to be. But does that mean that the image of God is lost in humans? And the answer is no. You can go to Genesis 9 and you can see clearly in God's covenant with Noah that the image is still there and he still values his image bearers. It's marred, right? But it's not lost. and It's not as it's meant to be. But there's good news. God sent Jesus. There's two other places where... This passage, Psalm 8, is quoted in the New Testament. One's in Ephesians 1, where it talks about all things being under his feet. The other is in 1 Corinthians 15, right in that section of 20 through 28. We're talking about the resurrection and all things being under his feet. 
The good news is that God sent Christ, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the perfect man. Paul will call him in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, the second and the last Adam. Quote the hymn, right? O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. That he sent another Adam, a second Adam. Later, Paul says, the last Adam. We don't need a third. We don't need another. Because he was successful. When the New Testament quotes these passages, we're talking about all things being under Jesus' feet. We see this in that he heals the blind, the lame, and the sick. We see death, right, coming in through sin and sickness. We've seen it being pulled back in Christ where we actually, in the end, see, when we look at Mark 5, we can look at John 11, we see death itself being reversed when Jesus raises the dead. And so we, we, see, we see the effects of sin. We see these things being pulled back in Christ through his rule and reign. We see that he, even creation itself obeys him when he says, Peace be still to the winds and the waves. In Mark chapter 4, his dominion over creation is seen. Yet we see his dominion more fully somewhere else. And that's the passage that we read this morning in worship. Hebrews chapter 2. We see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, that death that was brought in to show us that we are not God's, that death that we can't defeat, that we can't conquer, the second and last Adam has come to conquer that death. He has come and he's tasted that death for everyone so that he, verse 10 of Hebrews 2, can bring many to glory because he is the founder of their salvation. And he partook in flesh and blood, became a man that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, making propitiation for our sins. Friend, if you're here this morning you and heard nothing else, you need to know that God has created us and that he lays claim on us. If he creates us, we have to answer to him. It doesn't matter if you rebel against that, resist that, refuse that. He has created you and you will answer to him as your creator. And the reality is that every one of us have rebelled against him. We've asserted ourselves and we've sought to be our own gods. We've said, we said, we've got this, we don't need you. And the reality is we don't got this and we do need him. Because the outcome of our rebellion has been nothing but destruction, shame, pain, sorrow, and ultimately ends in death. And we've all stood there, or you will one day soon, and you'll stare at that coffin of a loved one and stare at that grave, and you feel the finality of that, and you know, how can we have hope in the face of this? Yet God sent his son Jesus to partake of flesh and blood. And it says by making propitiation for our sins that he went to the cross and he took the penalty. See, he never sinned, was without sin, went to the cross and died in our place for our sins and made propitiation. He satisfied the righteous anger and wrath that God has for our rebellion by taking, by dying as a rebel for us. And as I said earlier, he was reigning from the cross. Why? Because on that cross, he was destroying the sin that enslaves us and the death that awaits us. Yes, he went down into death, but the grave could not hold him. Because three days later, those nailed, scarred feet, they tread 
on that dirt and dominion as he defeated death once and for all. Friend, I'm telling you, there's nothing in this world that can offer you hope in the face of death. There's nothing that can offer you hope beyond the grave. If you've known comfort in those moments, it's not some sort of trite, trivial, hollow hope of a statement that someone has said, well, heaven just gained another angel or whatever else of, 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 of superficial comforts that people try to offer in those dark moments because they don't satisfy. If you've ever known hope there, you've known it only in Christ, the one who went into death and came out the other side victorious. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated is death and that he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep so that those who look to Christ Jesus, they will be raised up in victory one day just as he was raised on that third day. This is the good news of the gospel, that things are not as they should be, but Christ has come to set things right. And so this morning, the first call for anyone in this room is to recognize your need for salvation, to repent of trying to be your own God, and to turn to Christ, and to throw yourself on his mercy and grace and say, Hosanna to the King. Save, save now, save me. Bring me into your kingdom. And give me hope that goes beyond the grave. Brothers and sisters, with things being set right, but we live in this tension of the overlap of the ages, of the already, the not yet, that we await his return when things will be fully and finally made right. We have much to do in light of this passage. We receive salvation, yes, but we have a commission in light of this. So as we approach, let's go to that second expansive slide. (laughs) And let's let's look at Psalm 8 through gospel, community, mission, and worship. If you are tired of looking up there, it's right there too. Um, But these these are the core values of our church, and I think they fit so well with this passage. Brothers and sisters, first, let's think about this passage in light of the gospel. We just did that. And as those who have been saved by the gospel, what does this mean for us? It has implications for how we live now. That this, this truth, this reality, this gospel has implications for how we live now. Christian, as those who have been redeemed and are being made into the image of, of Christ Jesus, right? The, the, the second and last time we're being restored to, to what we are intended to be in our creation. Then we are to look like him. So question one, do you treat all people with dignity and respect? And not just outwardly, but inwardly. We're in the South, let's be honest. We're good at doing it on the external. But on the internal, thinking, you idiot. (laughs) Right? We're good at that. We're good at it. So we don't just mean externally, we mean internally. This is changing us. Think about Jesus with the woman at the well in John 4. How he treated her with dignity and respect. It absolutely shattered her worldview. That a man, and a Jewish man at that, would talk to her, a Samaritan woman, and didn't treat her like every other man in her life who had used her. 
that he, he, he came to her and he humbled her in calling out her sin. This is what the gospel always do. And then he exalted her as a daughter of God. Think about the death mute that he encountered in Mark's gospel. Sought not to make a spectacle of this person, but to pull him to the side. Touch his ears. I identify with you. Got in, in his world and in his mess. And showed him true love and compassion and brought healing and restoration. See, this week when you encounter people, a practice that we need to make is to say to ourselves, this is no mere mortal that I'm encountering. This is no lump of cells that behind that social media account is actually flesh and blood and a person and that everyone that we encounter is the image and the glory of God. And we're not viewing them based on the world's standards of their intellect or their bank account, of their clothes or their social status, of their, of their productivity, of what they can offer us. We're viewing them as the Lord views them. This begins to change the way that we live. Friend, how do you exercise authority? Like, what authority? Everybody has some. You're created in the image of God. We all have authority. How are you exercising it? I love, write this passage down, 2 Samuel 23, 3-4. I love this passage. David, as he's coming to the, near the end of his, of his ministry, a seasoned pastor pointed this to me early on in my ministry. And he said, this is, this is what it's to look like as we practice, exercise, leadership, authority. And as it's speaking, listen to what it says, 2 Samuel 23, 3-4. The God of Israel has spoken, David says. The rock of Israel has said to me, Listen, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What it's saying is, is when one rules as the Lord rules, people under their authority flourish. But when one rules Contrary to that, people under their authority wilt and wither. So ask yourself that. God has given me dominion. He's given me authority. Where I exercise my authority, is it a blight or a blessing to those? Parents, workplace. I know this is convicting and this hurts, but we need it. And on and on we can go. This gospel, that's just two implications. I'll leave you to talk more about that in your base group tonight of how this gospel informs us in light of Psalm 8 to live. Let's go to community. God isn't just making you individually. He's making a new people, Ephesians chapter 2, and that we are a part of a people. And so even in light of being, of being image bearers, being restored, we are the body of Christ. It's corporate, it's communal. The Lord has made a new people in Christ, and so there should be a love for God's people. We should have love for one another. See, we're to live out this kingdom ethic in community, and it should look otherworldly to the watching world. What I mean is, when they look at the church, they shouldn't say, oh, I get that. They're all weirdos. That's why they're together, right? And they may say that anyway unfairly. But they may say, oh, I get that. They're all, they're all just alike. They're homogenous. They... They all like the same things, work in the same area, 
They all had the same hobbies and interests, and that's why they're all together. No, no, no. It should look otherworldly as they look at the church and say, I don't really get it. I don't get why they like each other. I don't really get why, why they want to spend an hour together, two hours together, three maybe this morning when I get done, three hours together on Sunday morning, why they would give money uh, to that, why they would sit and listen to the word, and why they would sit next to somebody that they, don't, that they have nothing in common with. Well, we get it, don't we? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has brought us together. And it should look otherworldly to the world around us. And that doesn't mean that, that we're all best friends. But it means we are a family in Christ Jesus. Del Ralph Davis is a pastor, scholar, has been a great thinker, companion in the Psalms to me over the years. And listen to what he says. This is actually in light of Psalm 16 that talks about delighting in the Lord's people in the beginning of that psalm. I quote, he says, you may think this point reeks of soft-headed idealism. He says, loving God's people. They're delighting in God's people from Psalm 16 too. So, but listen to what he says. But the Bible is quite realistic. So he said, it's not soft-headed idealism. The Bible is quite realistic. It knows that the saints don't always act saintly. A quick read of the New Testament epistles easily supports this contention. And it's true that the folks who sometimes infuriate, aggravate, and frustrate you the most are fellow believers. In fact, some churches seem to have self-appointed whiners who perpetually point out how hurtful, uncaring the particular fellowship is. But it's a bit like one's own children. They often have teeth missing, running noses, and dead toads in their pockets. Yet, one wouldn't trade them for anything because of whose they are. So with the psalm, it won't let you off the hook. If Yahweh is your Lord, you will prize his people. Otherwise, something is wrong. There, he said it, not me. But it's true. I'll amen it. Brothers and sisters, we should love one another. And our love for one another here should look otherworldly and be somewhat compelling to the world. Because I want that. And we can say, hey, come to Christ and be a part of his people. Third, mission. Third, mission. We have a calling. Not to holiness, not only to holiness, that's what we talked about first. Not only to one another, that's what we talked about second. We also have a calling to that world that we were just talking about this, watching. Think about Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus makes a statement there that's kind of unique, isn't it? All authority has been given to me. You're like, oh, I thought you were Jesus. What, what are we talking about? All authority has been given to you. He's speaking in light of this task of, of being the second Adam who has succeeded in this call, right? All things will be subjected under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. First Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, all these things. So, so what he's saying is, I have succeeded. Where Adam failed, I have come and I have regained what was lost and all authority is mine. And now I'm telling you, in light of this, he gives us the, oh, how do I want to say this? The creation mandate 2.0 is how some scholars have said it. Tyler's shaking his head, so I'm not wrong on this. I see him right here. I think it's G.K. Bill and others have said this. He gives us a creation mandate 2.0. Now the call is God is not making a nation, but he's sending his people to the nations. That's the call. 
And I never remember there was a pastor, I'll never forget, I said I'll never remember. I'll never forget, there was a pastor years ago who said, be encouraged by this, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. He said, there is nowhere that you can go where Jesus doesn't have authority. And that now we are called to go to the nations and say, you can get in on this. You can receive amnesty from the king. You can meet him in his favor, in his mercy and grace. You don't have to meet him in his judgment and in his righteous and holy wrath, but you can know him through Christ Jesus and he will make you children of his own and you can live with him in bliss forever. Brothers and sisters, we have a call to go and to see the earth. It's filled with humans, to see it filled with image bearers, once again, who are being restored in Christ Jesus. As they hear the gospel, they believe, and they are wonderfully saved. We have this call. This is our commission. This is our mission until our king returns. And then last, how do we end? We end the same way David did. You notice he forms bookends in this psalm like we talked about with Psalm 1 and 2. How does he end? He says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's nothing greater. There's nothing grander. That's what drives us to go and tell others. There's nothing greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we should want everyone to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing greater than our God, and we want everyone to know him This is Jesus' prayer when he teaches us how to pray in his model prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want your name to be hallowed, revered, and glorified in all the earth. Psalm 67, we want the nations to know of your saving power and might. So we end in worship, we begin in worship. It's worship that fuels it all. Why do you come here and, 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 and be with people who will rub against you because you love the Lord and you know that he's at work in other people just as he's at work in you? It's worship that fuels all of this and sustains it all. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it in our life. We ask that you'd use it in the life of our church. Lord, convict where conviction is needed. Build up where we need to be built up. Sustain, increase faith where we lack it. Father, this week as we leave out from here in light of your word, let the gospel inform all that we do. Let the ethic of our lives be that of our king. Came not to be served, but to serve. Let us serve others. Father, we pray that that we will love one another in this room well with an otherworldly love that draws the world in. And that we can tell them the source of that, which is Christ. Father, give us more and more of a passion to do what our kings called us to do, which is to take this good news to all the world. Father, sustain our worship. Let us never cease to be amazed by grace. Let us never cease to grow weary of hearing the good news. Father, let us always marvel at your beauty and your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.